1: I don't know what we're going to talk about, do you?
2: We'll soon find out.
1: But every now and again I might fart, so I will pause. Oh,
2: she's off, she's off. With the pandemic, you used to cough to cover up the noise of a fart. Now you have to fart fart. to cover up the noise of a (laughs)
0: cough.
3: (laughs) You're in heaven. That's brilliant. Hello and welcome to Now Where Were We? Bob Cryer here. Today we've swapped the pints and peanuts for a cup of coffee and a slice of cake because we're not heading to the pub instead we're popping into the home of one of the country's most celebrated and beloved actresses the wonderful Miriam Margolyes we decided the best place to start was right at the very beginning did you make your parents laugh growing up
1: yes i think i did probably
3: were they humorous people were they funny, funny people yeah
1: mummy was daddy daddy wasn't i remember <laughs> i said to him daddy you know because when mummy died, he was very much alone. And I said, Daddy, well, you know, where are your friends? And he said, Friends. Friends are people who drag you down. Oh, <laughs> oh boy. That, oh, that's I, sad. That, wow. that is. That was Oh, dear. I never yeah.
3: forgotten that. Wow. Oh, dear.
1: Friends are people who drag you down.
3: Oh, dear. Discuss. Do, well, I mean, listeners, friends listen, 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 are people who lift me up. My yeah, enemy, yeah,
1: yeah, yeah.
2: What do your enemies do while your <laughs> friends are dragging you down?
1: <laughs> but that was such a dark, Applaud. yes, dark way what of looking it at it. There yeah. must
2: be a reason. Well, well he, he
1: he was of a dual frame of mind, right? You know, he was yeah. a, he was a Presbyterian Jew.
2: <laughs> what a combination! <laughs> yes. And he grew when up he, in well, he g-
1: grew up in Glasgow, so he you know, born in Scotland. And that kind of slightly doer mentality was what he was familiar with. Yeah. So he, he, he had a very sour view of the world.
3: You have something in common. I mean, lots of things in common. I mean, Dad, technically you weren't an only child, but you did grow up as an only child because your yeah. brother was that much older. And My was in brother the, was the nine Merchant years Navy, older than me.
1: Is he dead now? Well,
3: yes. Away in the
2: Merchant Navy, this is Leeds, but he was away in the Merchant Navy, came back to Leeds and disappeared down here to London to be a civil servant. I hardly
3: knew my own brother. And my dad died when I was five. So oh, it was gosh. me and my mum. But you would say that a lot of your desire to make people laugh comes from making her laugh. And yeah. you know that you did, but because she was a doer, Yorkshire housewife, no, no, she was
2: Cumbrian. Cumbrian. She married a
3: Yorkshireman. Yeah.
2: Shall I? Oh, yes, my very first professional job uh, was City Variety Theatre Leeds, where they used to do the television show, the good old days. I, I remember that. Television was on the massive march, killing off the variety theatres. So they, they went for, what shall we do, strippers. They then lost the family audience. My first job, bottom of the bill, with strippers at the City Varieties, going home every night to supper with my mother, and I thought, oh, boy, she must have thought, what is he doing? And I waited until the Wednesday. She never, ever said, how did it go tonight? She never asked. I gave up. I thought, well. But on the Saturday, there was a matinee. And I went in. The woman in the box office said, come here, come here. Was that your mother last night? I said, was what my mother last night? She said, I, I knew it was your mother. It was a small woman with the rain hat on. <laughs> She came up to me and said, What time's Barry Cryer on? I said, In about 10 minutes, love. She said, Can I buy a ticket? I thought, It's his mother. And I said, No, you can't buy a ticket. You're going in. And she got us shown into the theatre. She was shown a seat. She didn't sit down. She stood at the back of the stalls. I did my act and then she fled into the night. And I got home that night for supper. And I said, you came last night, didn't you? Yes, yes. And I waited. (laughs) She said, the suit looked nice. (laughs) And then I later heard, she said to my aunties, he was very good. But you don't tell. You don't tell. He might get too big for his boots. Bob Mortimer, who hasn't written a book at the moment, Bob Mortimer said his dad died when he was seven. And he said, I got nobody to please, no role model, he said, So I must have spent all these years trying to please people. And I thought I must have spent all these years showing off because I hadn't got a look at me, Dad. Well, there
1: is a a frame of mind, and my father certainly had it, that was that you don't praise people. Because um, Mark Eden, you know, lovely Mark Eden, who was an actor and was in Coronation Street for a long time, long time. Well, he, when he was out of work, he used to do painting jobs and he did a job at our house. They needed uh, mummy and daddy. I think daddy was on his own. That's right. And he needed the the ceiling down in the sitting room. So Mark came and did it. And he said to daddy, um, Dr. Margulies, I'm going to be in a play on television tomorrow night. On BBC and and Daddy said, "Oh, really? That's very interesting. Yes, I might uh, I might have a look at that." And um, so, a couple of days later, <laughs> Mark came back to finish the job, and he said, um, "Oh, Doctor, um, did you did you catch my uh, my performance the other night on the on the telly?" And Daddy said, "Oh, yes, yes, I did. It, it was above average." <laughs> <laughs>
2: Indeed. High praise indeed, high
1: praise. As far as Daddy was concerned, that was high praise.
3: And you received the same treatment, I assume? Or- no,
1: Daddy was with me. They they were they overpraised. Great, they, they overpraised. But per- Jewish parents, you know, they're, an- they're another thing. And I remember I had a cousin who was who was an actress, also Rowena, and her her mother was. Um, Very passionate about Rowena, and she used to get her to do little performances in front of the rallies on a Sunday afternoon, and you'd go, you know, you'd have some cake and you'd see Rowena doing her stuff. And her her mother used to say in the middle of quite a dramatic piece, she'd say, look at her expression. (laughs) 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 Marvellous. Thereby slightly <laughs> killing the moment
0: for
2: her. Here he goes again, and just remembering a thing. A line you could say to people in the business, if you saw them do a play or something and you didn't like what you saw them doing and then you're with them and you think, oh, the subject's going to come up. And the great ambiguous line is, you're better than that. You're praising them, but by Im- implication, knocking yeah, what they've yeah. just done. I think it's a quite brilliant
1: line there. Oh, it is. Well, I mention a couple in that. my book of what people, when you when you go round after what you're supposed to say. Yeah. Yes. And one of the, one of the ones that I, that I quote is, look at you. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> what
3: about
2: you? Yes, <laughs> that's right. That well, m-
3: mum's is always the costumes were nice. That's always her standby. Yeah. Yes. Do you know a director called Randall Arnie, And he was part of Steppenwolf. Ah, very so well, they're was, good. Yes, when uh, Malkovich and Sinise started yeah. um, there, he worked with them. There's some sort of uh, synchronicity here. I played Elvis in a Steve Martin play oh, at yeah. the West yeah. Yorkshire Playhouse. Yeah. Picasso um, at La Pana Indeed. And it was Steve Martin imagining a conversation between Picasso and Einstein at the La Pana in 1904. And it's a lovely... Brilliant. Conceit because you get these two great minds who are about to, in his words, shape the twentieth century. Randall Arney came over to direct, and it was the European premiere, and Steve Martin was very excited about it. And apparently he was going to come over, but then yeah. he started to get word of the um the critics' reviews from London. And and Randy was talking about his experience of of going through bad crits and everything. He said, Well, it's nothing compared to one of the first shows I directed at Steppenwolf when um it hadn't gone well in the dress rehearsal and I knew we were in for a kicking. He said, I knew it was really bad when I was pacing up and down the back of the stalls and the show finished and one of the, one of the punters came out, looked in the reception and just went, and it's raining.
1: I worked with Steve Martin in the the Little Shop of Horrors,
3: a yeah. film. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Where he played was, the dentist.
1: He played the dentist I played the dentist receptionist who was always being knocked down and I had to just be in the right moment and his fist would go out.
2: Oh, I remember. Oh, God. It
1: was horrible. I got such a headache from it. And no praise whatsoever for being in the right place, being knocked down every three minutes, you know, as we were doing it. But what was for me memorable about that film was that when I went for the interview, there was this really nice man who was interviewing me and I looked at him and I thought, you're Miss Piggy. It was Frank Oz. (laughs) Yeah. You're Miss Piggy. I'm being interviewed by
3: Mr. Oh, yes. <laughs> wasn't that
1: amazing?
3: Did you have fun with Steve, though?
1: No, I didn't like him at no. all. I thought he was Oh, foreign. that's sad. No, he's, he's brilliant. Yeah. But I was just a prop as far as yeah, he was concerned. Yeah. He wasn't interested in me as a human being at all. Uh. He just knocked me over. <laughs> I,
3: had. I don't know what
2: this has got to do with anything, but it's to do with our <laughs> business. It's the nature of the podcast. Hermione yeah. Gingold, that wonderful name, the yeah. actress. She said she came out of a stage door one night and there was a little crowd of autograph hunters and everything. And there was quite a small girl with her mother. And she said, I saw this little girl pointing at me and saying to her mother, What's that lady for? <laughs> <laughs> she said, I never forgot that. What am I for? Good question. <laughs> You, Not do you know you were talking about
3: hearing people in the audience with, in the middle of, yeah. uh, of speaking? That's that's Gilgood's great piece of advice to young actors: never pause when you're on stage. I paused once, and I heard someone in the front row say, "Oh, you beast! You've come all over my umbrella." <laughs> 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 Depends what depends what theatres you're playing, but you know.
1: No, a pause is an essential, <laughs> an essential thing. But when um, I was working with uh, Donald Sinden, and somebody in the audience had a cough, a really bad cough, he broke character, and it was. Um, the hard castles. You know, oh, he she was, stoops
3: to conquer. Yeah, she stoops yeah. to conquer. Oh, yes, yeah.
1: And he, he came to the f- front <laughs> of the stage. We were in the middle of a scene. <laughs> and he said, oh, I say, there's a terrible cough who got there. <laughs> Has anyone got a pastel by? Uh, <laughs> yeah, you, oh, then no, give, give the poor chap a, a pestle. You, you know, suck that for a while. That's what <laughs> uh, help you. Dear, dear, dear. It's, it's, about, it's going about at this time of the. <laughs> And I was waiting to resume as Mrs Hardcastle. And it's very difficult to know what to do. Do you do you become <laughs> Miriam Margulies for a, for a few moments? Join or, him there, yes. Or, oh. or do you just stay as Mrs Hardcastle? And I don't know what I did, actually. I just kind of froze. And then... And then Donald and, and joined you again and then you he carried joined on joined me scene. and we carried on. Wilfred
2: Hyde-White, was it, was on tour with a play... A farce or something, and he wasn't happy with it at all. He couldn't wait for the tour to finish. He made it known. He wasn't enjoying it. In the middle of a performance one night, he walked up front and said, is there a doctor in the house? And the man shouted, yes, 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 I'm a doctor. He said, doctor, isn't this a lousy play?
1: (laughs) I once had to say that actually, it was in the <laughs> middle of uh, Dickens' Women, which was the sh- my one-woman show. Yes. Yeah. And in the middle of it, it was at Hampstead, and a woman started to make the most awful noise, and I thought to myself, "Is it? Is it me? Is am I am I doing this very badly? Because you, you 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 have an internal monologue all the time that you're actually." doing your part something yes, is moving yeah. inside your mind and finally i thought no she's really not well something is wrong so i stopped and i came to the front of the of the uh, of the stage and i said i never thought that i would ever say this but is there a doctor in the house and because it was hampstead practically the whole audience <laughs> stood up <laughs>
3: <laughs>
1: oh, <boy>. God! <laughs> <laughs> she was all right. It was an epileptic fit.
3: Who's the naughtiest person you've been with on stage who misbehaved the most?
1: I can't think of anybody
3: who's misbehaved. Not technically misbehaving, but you, you've both worked with Paul Schofield. Oh, God, he was wonderful.
1: I loved him.
3: Espresso
2: Bongo, 1958. He and this is a man, wonderful. I mean, you know, a the theatrical reputation and... And he got an Oscar by then? Anyway, we couldn't believe it, that he was doing a... He'd never done a musical, and he loved it. And uh, we we were in awe of the man, but soon lost the awe because he was so likeable. And his catchphrase was, don't say hello, then. His dressing room door always open, don't say hello, then. And we we fooled... He was a marvellous man. And we very pompously thought, oh, he's still carrying the book in rehearsals, you know, as if he hasn't learned the lot. And we opened in Newcastle. Bang! And Millicent Martin was in the show, and minimal scenery when you're on tour. And her flat that she lived in was a flat, you know, standing, a set, little set. And uh, the opening night in Newcastle, he would enter through that door and kick it shut behind him. And he kicked it behind him, and it fell, thud, on the stage. Smoke and dust rose up. The audience could see the back wall of the theatre. And he (laughs) grabbed hold of Millie to get her out of the way, and he turned and looked at this wreckage and said, mice. (laughs) (sighs) And I played the lead of a a skiffle group. had a tiny scene with the great man. Skiffle group, that dates it. I was called Beast, but I wore big kipper ties in those days, palm trees and nude women on your tie. And after a while, I would beg, borrow, steal or buy another tie. People were helping me with this. So I'd go on to the little scene with him, and he'd look and see this different tie reperformance. performance. And the audience couldn't hear him. He did it like a ventriloquist. Where the fuck did you get that? That's <laughs> fucking awful. Oh, God. I couldn't remember my lines for laughing. He was lovely. And I was walking down. He's doing the potting shed by Graham Green after that. And I bumped into him in the street one day. Don't say hello then. Oh, there's Paul. I said, how are you enjoying the play? No fucking overture," he said. <laughs> I love that.
1: He was a magical, and he person. was never
2: interviewed. Never did chat shows. Didn't no. want to know. And he got go off up the Hebrides with his wife. He had a underway. place
1: in Mull with with Joy. Oh, okay, in the Sorry? island of Mull was where he went.
2: Oh yes, uh, in yes, Scotland. Yes, that's right. He loved, lovely guy. There, he
1: loved the peace and quiet of it. Yeah. all.
2: but he was a classic example of you. You take the jobs, well, sometimes, the jobs seriously, but not yourself. Yeah. He was
3: so natural and funny when you were with him. He was well, like- Ga- Gambon apparently is yes, the same. Yes, he's like that. And he uh, he used to take a, um, a water pistol, apparently, on stage during blackouts. So <laughs> and fire at people. people during the blackout. Paul
2: Schofield in Moscow was doing something heavy, Lear or something, and he was driven mad by all the earnest students in the audience. He said you could probably... Hear the pages turning when they're doing a scene. So one night in Moscow, he did the stations of the Northern Line from Edgeware down to Euston. <laughs> <laughs> oh God! And he came on one night. And
3: they said, <laughs> came on one well, night. Doesn't that, that ties in with the joke about the uh, the dog playing the trumpet. Oh yes. I'll do
2: this quickly about Paul and then yeah. the dog playing the trumpet. <laughs> He came on one night, they said, in this play with his eyes closed, but had been doing it on his eyelids. It said, fuck this. <laughs> <laughs> what a lovely man. <laughs> now, Bob's prompted me into this. On a train in Essex, a man was training a dog to play the trumpet, and within an hour the dog got from barking to tooting. <laughs> <laughs> and I told that once in the pub, and a guy said... And the passengers got to clap him. <laughs> Isn't that great? <laughs> yes.
1: <laughs> I remember when somebody stuck their cock into me <laughs> on a on a. You know, I was fully clothed, and so was he on a tube. And I said, "Now, what did I say to him? Will you will you take your cock out of my ass?" Fair enough. <laughs> Very loudly. And he did. Oh,
2: well, that's <laughs> and polite. he did. <laughs> no, they're all crammed in a tube and a woman's looking out the window and saying, is, is this Cockfosters? <laughs> no, madam, it's mine. <laughs>
1: That is an old one. That's a
3: very old one. That's a very old one, it is. Well, that's when people had fancy dress parties in the 90s university. People would say, well, the theme is tube stations. Half the people went as cockfosters, but my favourite was the guy that went in and a whole load of beer mats he got stitched together. And we're going, who are you? And he went, made of ale. <laughs>
2: Eric Morecambe was asked about this, what would make an audience laugh. He said, just say cockfosters.
3: <laughs>
1: Well, uh, Ken Dodd was a great believer oh, in words. Oh. You worked he with is, Ken Dodd, yes, yes. I absolutely loved him. He was, it was a one-off. Wasn't yes, it? he was extraordinary. But he did—he did frighten me because he would put you in front of the camera to read the auto cue, and you didn't know what the punchline was. <laughs> and it's really hard to tell a joke if you don't know what the punchline yeah. is, and you don't know when it's coming, and you just go <laughs> like. With your eyes wheeling from side to side. So the, the timing
3: is in the hands of whoever's operating the autocue. Yes. You know, Ken, oh. was he sat there going, just give it a few spaces? He used
1: to laugh at that. He found that really funny. But for him, performing was just the natural thing. He One didn't... night
2: there was a special I worked on and he went on to do a warm-up with the audience. Imagine him doing a warm-up. It <laughs> was going on and on the warm-up. And the directors said. Keep going, keep going. And they filmed his whole warm-up and they paid off the cast and said, we'll be doing this show again and you'll get the job again. They didn't have to do the show that <laughs> night. And they showed his warm-up
1: as a oh, $10
2: special, hadn't they? The man was a one-off. it's yeah. just amazing. And then he had his tax trial and then he'd make jokes about it. And George Carman QC got Roy Hard and Eric Sykes as character witnesses. <laughs> and I met Lord Levison, Brian Levison, who was prosecuting. And he said, early on, we realised we're on a loser here. Ken Dodd was very apprehensive to start with, but then relaxed. He said, I could see the jury at one point trying not to laugh. He said, I swear I saw the judge try not to laugh. I thought, we're finished here. And Doddy got away with it and put it in his act, talked about his <laughs> tax trial. So Terry, my darling, and I were invited to a lunch with Eric Sykes. Eric Sykes and Roy Hudd had been character witnesses in the tax trial. Eric was congenitally deaf, still had problems, and was getting the opposite of tunnel vision. Your face was a bit wobbly in the middle, but he was doing a play, doing a little scene in a play, but he had to have a minder, on you go, Eric. Doddy turns up at this lunch. He's come all the way down from the north. You think, is she paying a bargain here for Eric Sykes? He remembers what Eric did for him. So Doddy stands up to speak and he pointed at Eric and said, this man's deaf and blind and he's doing a play. And Eric said, we're a lovely couple. I don't know when to go on and you don't know when to come off."
3: <laughs> <laughs> oh, dear. Shut up, Cryer. We touched on, um, if I can put it that way, John Gilgood earlier. Did you know John Gilgood's no. dr- dresser in LA?
1: Oh, Eric.
3: And it was through Eric you met Vincent Price. Yes. And dinner parties with Vincent yes. Price, which is another thing you have in common with Dad, because Dad made a movie with Vincent Price, and you got to know him quite well. Okay. So- Dinner. So at I'm our keen on house. to hear a shared experience of Vincent Price, Miriam Price. Well, my, yes.
1: my experience is, is very small. It was just around the dinner table, literally. And he was just madly in love with his wife, Coral Brown. Coral Brown. And um, his second wife, I think.
2: Yes. And he yep. was always,
1: I thought, gay. But somehow those things didn't matter. No. It was just about love. And that's what there was. And clearly, they loved each other. We
2: did. Uh, I'd done television shows with him. He did a lot of guesting on chat shows and things. And Ray Cameron, Mike McIntyre's father, uh, and I wrote this <laughs> bloodbath at the House of Death for Kenny Everett. And we got Vincent Price, who flew over to do it, and we're filming outside Potter's Bar. He's sitting on a tree stump, smoking his Marlborough, And Graham Stark had worked with Kirk Douglas and everybody. And Peter Sellers
1: and, yeah. Yes.
2: And uh, Graham (laughs) said, I haven't met Vincent, Baz. Could you introduce me? I said, certainly. So I introduced the two of them, walked away, and they were chatting. Long before email and everything, I got a beautifully written little note from Vincent Price. Thank you for introducing me to uh, Graham. Most entertaining company. He appeared to mention everybody, with the possible exception of two popes. (laughs) (laughs) Wonderful. (laughs) Lovely guy. He
1: was a good actor, actually. Oh, yeah. Somebody said,
2: was he getting bored? Was he worried about being typecast in these camp horror films? Loving every minute, he said. He told me, he said, no, I'm enjoying this. What's the problem? Cushing and uh, Vincent Price used to make each other laugh, didn't oh, they? No, they said they did a scene. The cameraman told me they were out on location, and I've forgotten the plot, but Peter Cushing opens this door and is confronted by Vincent. Dun, 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 <laughs> you know, the, from the past. And this cameraman said, Vincent walks, we're filming him from the back, Peter opens the door, and Peter Cushing looks and went, it's you. And Vincent turned to the camera and said, ain't it the truth? <laughs> <laughs> and he said, we all start laughing and we do the scene again. But he said, nobody complained. He was great.
1: I don't think that people now have that, that quality that, that those guys did. that no, I was same in,
2: sense of impishness. And Yes. I was invited years ago. The young ones had erupted onto the screen, which was brilliant in its own way. And they invited me, and I sat in on a rehearsal. I'd, I'd met Aid Edmondson and Rick, you know. And when they stopped rehearsing, they were painfully serious. And when we stopped <laughs> with Russ Abbott or somebody, we were all <laughs> pissing about and laughing and relaxing. And I thought, oh, I, I respect you. You're so earnest and serious. Relax and have a laugh when you're not yeah. working. Judy Dennis. Uh, oh, she's well, a
1: great giggler. She's yeah.
2: great. She can do an intense dramatic scene. And, and then just, as soon as the camera's off, she's telling a dirty joke or something. And, oh, No, she's great.
1: fabulous. She's fabulous. And and Maggie Smith, too. And yeah. Eileen. Oh, yeah. Do you know Eileen? Eileen Atkins. I, oh. I just adore her. She's,
2: she's, she's my talks. Who hasn't got a book out at the moment. <laughs> Eileen's got one out. It's in. a
1: wonderful book. Her, What's the name her of her book's book? Becker, better than mine. I hate to say it. It, it is, honestly. It's called Will She Do. Oh, will that's she lovely. Do. So Will She it?
3: Do and This Much Is True, yeah. there's a nice symmetry to that. Yeah. And, and What's She For? <laughs> <laughs>
0: So, after some more coffee and cake, made by a
3: neighbour, it's among the top five cakes any of us have ever eaten, coffee and walnut, in case you were wondering, we sat down to talk about a pair of unique retirement homes, the Actors' Retreat Denville Hall in Northwood and Brinsworth House in Twickenham, which caters for performers from the world of variety and entertainment. You know, (laughs) Brinsworth (laughs) House in Twickenham?
2: Oh, yes. Well, that's uh, us. That's hall and variety yes. and everything. So yeah. do
1: you feel that I'm a cut above you, Barry, then?
2: <laughs> yes, definitely. <laughs> no,
1: but I'm fascinated by this because Bringsworth House is where old variety entertainers yes, go. Yes, that's right. And, and Denver, Denver is Hall is posh. Yeah. It's where
2: actors actors, and, uh, and actresses... Miriam, you use the word actress then. Always. You don't want to be called an actor, do you? No. I think it's patronising to call women actors. I do too. They should have their
1: like own it. title. But then there's so many things that have changed with what things are called. But there's always been that division between variety. Oh, yes, And, and yes. I remember how thrilled I was when John Inman asked me to go and, and be his guest at the Water Rats do, because he was King Rat one year. I'm sure you've done that lots of yeah. times. And I'd never been in that surroundings, and I, I was sat next to Betty Boothroyd. Oh, yes. Who was a tiller girl and Speaker of the House. Yes,
3: <laughs> what Not a life that is.
1: <laughs> different, different types, oh, you know.
3: Duke of Edinburgh. Of those robes,
2: who knew? <laughs> Duke of Edinburgh came to a water up session, Inn Road, the pub, and uh, we were ding-dogging a joke all over the place, and then he stood up to speak and he said... It's like being in a room full of comedy incest. <laughs>
1: <laughs> what was he like?
2: Oh, he's, he was funny. But then again, he was always doing, oh, he didn't say that, did he? You know, it, it was a joke in its context. But when these debates go on, I'll say if it's wrong now, it was wrong then. Yeah. We did a radio show called Hello Cheeky, Tim Rook Taylor, John Junkin and I, and I was the funny black man who used to ring up. I winced when I heard it on Radio 4 Extra. I thought, oh, did I do that? Yeah. Yes, you did. Own up.
3: <laughs> and with another slice of cake on the go, the conversation moved on to Miriam's experience of the Footlights, where she performed alongside one of Dad's old writing partners, Graham Chapman of Monty Python fame. You were in Footlights shows, but, but as a woman, you weren't allowed to be part of the club.
1: No, you just weren't you weren't able to join the yeah. footlights. That was And Graham
3: was part of the footlights at the time. Oh I, yes, yeah. he was
1: he was a big star yeah. of the
3: footlights. And you weren't necessarily accepted by that group and you said they were quite cold to you. Oh they're vile. Yeah.
1: I will never be bullied. I decided that yeah. when I was young. I will never be bullied, and I wasn't bullied by the footlights, although they wanted to bully me. Yeah. Not just cold. Well, that but upsets
2: me because I'd, he he was and became a friend, Graham. But it does upset me when I get the context of things like that. And it was male dominated. Python. Any female parts were played by them in drag, weren't they?
1: Absolutely. Apart from Carol
2: like, Cleveland, yes. who was patronised and did the odd and bit, and Joe
1: Kendall, who was patronised. Yes. Yeah. We didn't have a voice then. Women just didn't. It was. Just at the beginning, when, when Jermaine came from Australia, Jermaine Greer. Jermaine Greer. Six foot tall and feisty and sharp. And and another and Footlights
3: performer, yes.
1: I don't think, was she able to join then? I think Emma Thompson was the first person that actually joined.
3: Wow. I should say in your book, This Much Is True, which obviously is a, a very good reason to speak to you today as well. Yeah, yeah. Timbrook Taylor apparently did apologise later in life. Is that right?
1: What a nice man. Yeah. And I do mourn his death genuinely because when he got the OBE, a little bit after I did, (laughs) um, (laughs) he and, and Graham and Bill Oddy, whom I don't like, they got the OBE and I was magnanimous enough to write to Tim, who I had always actually liked, congratulating him and he wrote back a very nice email and then i i wrote and said well you know since we're in communication let me let me tell you this that i'm still smarting from the hurt <laughs> of yeah. 60 years ago whatever it was and i told him what i felt about it and how horrible they'd been and he wrote back an immediate and genuine apology. He he said he hadn't realised, and I think he probably hadn't.
3: Where does that burning desire to write the the injustices come from? Have you psychoanalyzed the sort of? Did you see bullying when you were growing up?
1: I don't think it's anything from my personal experience, because my my life as a as a child was very very happy. I had gorgeous parents who loved me, but I think I was conscious. Living in Oxford, that I didn't fit in. I always mm. knew that Daddy was Jewish and spoke with a Scottish accent. And people in Oxford didn't. They spoke with an Oxford accent, like I now speak in some something like that. And I've always felt, as my parents felt that they were looked down on and yeah. they were disadvantaged. It's a class thing, really. If you come from, from the lower middle class, it's, it's just horrible and you, you feel that you don't belong in the world and um, did they have
3: personal convictions about it? How did they deal with it? Their- they never
1: mentioned it. My parents never mentioned it. But Mummy was always very keen that I should keep away from common people. She wanted she wanted to <laughs> sort of have a distinction between those people and us. She wanted to hang on to whatever yeah. yep. class privilege she she could. And, and so she did. And so I was always conscious that there were people who had it easier.
2: You mentioned bullying uh, at school. We had the Marshall Bellow. What about that for a name? He used to whip us with wet towels when we were swimming and crush you. He was a big guy, crush you on the tram when you're going to a sports field. And I must have subconsciously adopted the role, I'll make the bully laugh. I'll fend him off, I'll make the bully laugh. Years go by, I think it was through the Variety Club, I get warm greetings from Lord Bellow. And I thought, if I ever meet you, I'll be quite polite, but I'll be looking at you thinking, do you bully your employees? Leopards don't change their spots, do they? I remember you.
1: It's something we don't ever forgive.
2: Well, you have to think there's an insecurity under that. If you're a bully, you must be... You insecure need it. underneath. Yeah, yeah. I've got to get command of a situation otherwise I'm out of it, you know.
1: Well, I got command by making people laugh. Yeah. That's and so did you. I hope.
2: Yes.
3: Not a bad way of making a living. <laughs> it's
1: great. Uh, it's, and as we were
3: discussing earlier, what what is a great revelation in the book is that you say you hate comedy. But I think what you mean is you hate deliberate comedy. You like when things are
1: Yes, I like I, I like reality comedy. I like life That's funny, funny things that happen in life. But when, when it's a formula, like it can be in in American comedy, when they have a a script writers and they do three jokes to a page. I don't like that. I I just don't believe in it.
3: But you've been through that process living in LA and and Norman Lear, we talked about, he was sort of your, uh, your sponsor brought you over. He was
1: lovely. He was a really nice guy. I liked him, Uh, but he was very funny as well without knowing that he was, because when I, when I came to America at at his behest, he said, he said, I want, I want you to, I want you to do a show in, in Hollywood or somewhere where I can show you to the community. And they'll they'll understand what you know what kind of a person you are, because you're English. It's kind of different. You don't, you know, you're you're strange, you're new. We want to get get the hang of you a bit. And I said, Well, I've got a show about Charles Dickens. He said, Oh, Charles Dickens, huh? Okay, that's kind of heavy. <laughs> I said, Well, <laughs> would you like us to show it to you, show you the show and see what you think? So he came to a to a, a show. We did it for him. And at the end of it, he said, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, uh, uh, you know, you're very good. You're very good. You know what would help a little in the interval? Why don't you bring a ladder on stage and you climb the ladder and tell Jewish jokes? (laughs) (laughs) I think that would. Where's my
3: pen? What a great idea. It's the trick Dickens missed, isn't it? Oh, yes. (laughs) Yes.
1: So we didn't do it in the end. We didn't. We, we did the show, but we we left the ladder off.
3: We bought the ladder. We kept the receipt. I hope.
1: But, but all the stories that I tell are true. Yeah. About the things that have happened in my life, they're true. And I know nobody believes them, but they are. Do people true. come up to
3: you and say, "I don't believe that story"? Or
1: they put it on the internet when I did a story just the other day about. Having a vaginal examination for parking on a double yellow line. Yeah. They didn't believe it. I'm sorry, I've got <laughs> coffee and walnut in my mouth. Um, well, as opposed to anything else. Um,
2: the Queen allegedly said recollections may vary. We've all been there. I've certainly been there saying something that I experienced years before and telling a story. And somebody else who was there at the time said, no, it wasn't like that. Yeah. But you meant it. Genuinely, at the time, your memory of what happened at the time. But I've told stories. Now, here's a sodding one. I spoke to Marilyn Monroe on the phone. Now, anybody hearing that would say, I don't believe that. If I heard somebody say that, I'd say, I don't believe that. But it's true.
1: Everybody adored her. She had that quality that was vulnerable and sexy at the same time. Just beautiful. Beautiful. I remember very sadly that on the day of my 21st birthday party, she was found dead the next day. Yeah. And it was like um, the closing of a door yeah. on my youth. Those, those archetypal figures of one's youth, I don't know who they are now. I suppose for some people it's Elton John. I, I've only come across him on a red carpet. And he amazingly came up to me and said, oh, hello, Miriam, and gave me a hug. Yeah. And I wanted everyone to see it. (laughs) All I was concerned with was that it had been photographed at this moment that I was hugged by Elton John because his boyfriend used to live next door here.
2: David. Yeah. Yeah.
1: David Furnish.
2: Yeah. Reg Um, Dwight from Pinner. I live in Hatch End and I worked on the Kenny Everett Show writing and – Elton was on. where you get all the amazing people, and he came over to me and said, "How's that change?" Because <laughs> he was Reg <laughs> from Pinner, who used to play
3: the piano on
2: recording sessions.
3: Everybody. And in Rocket Man, they sort of chronicle his early years as a as an accompanist in pubs that, well, you and I probably would have ended up yeah. in at various points. And it, aruding, John's just delightful to me.
2: It's just that old thing of uh, take your job seriously, but not yourself. Mm. I mean, he doesn't laugh a lot about himself, but he's so natural talking. He's, yeah. well, the job is want. over there. Want that from- this is me. The job is over there, yeah. you know. Moments in real life. My darling and I, Terry and I were in Morrison's one day and an older couple walked past us. She was almost skipping. She said to him as they passed, only two more items. They're quite small. And as he passed me, he said, the excitement builds. A <laughs> <laughs> treasure that. Isn't that wonderful?
1: <laughs> yes. I like one overheard on a bus which was two women talking, and she said, yes, he he, he touched me under my skirt. You know, the gore one.
2: <laughs> <laughs> Specify which one. Yes. Yeah. I did a after dinner gig on a Friday night. And um, this woman said, you live in Hatch End, don't you? And and, uh, we live in Ryslip. Have you got to go on a train tomorrow? She said, give me a lift home. Cancel your train ticket. I said, yeah, fine. So it was great. i driven back, and they're chatting away. And one's talking about her husband. And she said, oh, Bruce. He's towing a paper tiger down the high street in rice Lip this afternoon. He's got lumbered with it, the round table, you know, the charity and everything. And uh, her mate said, how did he get stuck with that? She said, he's the only round tabler with a tow bar. <laughs> 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 and I told Alan Bennett on the phone, and he doesn't laugh, he groans. He went, oh, oh, I'm having No. <laughs> And a month or two later, in the old days, North Acton rehearsal rooms—we called the North Acton Hilton. Yes, I remember. <laughs> that. I'm waiting to go up the canteen or whatever. and The lift doors opened, and Alan came out, and he didn't say hello. He just looked at me and said, "I'm the only round tabler with a tover." <laughs> <laughs> what a line that is!
3: You did "Lady in the Van," didn't you?
1: I did. I went to see Alan Bennett to check that it was okay to do it because. Obviously, I didn't look anything like the Miss Shepherd that was the lady in the van, but I really wanted to do it. It was a wonderful part. Mm. And um, he said, oh, no, that's fine. You do it. You do that. You'll be fine.
2: He hates the expression light entertainment. (laughs) He said it's bloody hard work. What are they saying?
1: (laughs) I think he's wonderful.
2: But he's quite quite happy with the cosy image. Let them think what they want about me. I'm not... Coming out like that.
1: Oh, he's loved and admired and lauded now. Mm.
2: As a playwright, I think, even to this day, he's not up there, right up there where he should be. As a playwright, he's brilliant.
1: I think so. Uh, Yes, I, I really do.
3: And with that, our time with Miriam had come to an end. We'll see you next time when we'll be sitting down with the tremendous Sanjeev Bhaskar but if there's one thing we've learned from doing this show, it's that the show is never truly over. So, as we were packing up, we left the microphones on.
0: <laughs>
2: At some point, I've got to tell Miriam, the old lady with the Bible on the train.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I think you've told me that. Oh. But I can't remember... Takes
2: the Bible out of a bag and reads from it. Next stage, yes. she puts the Bible back in a bag.
1: You have, but I don't remember the.
2: No, John Mortimer. I'll put it in context. John Mortimer, right? He was in a wheelchair by then, and it was Sheiky's restaurant, Leicester Square. And he gave me a wave, and I went over, and we chatted. And then he said, "Joke, come on." And it flooded back recently, Miriam, that I told him this joke. There's a man sitting in opposite of a sweet old lady on a train. The train leaves the station. She takes a Bible out of her bag, reads silently. Next station, Bible back in the bag. Same thing, train sets off, next station. Now he's riveted and it happens a third time and he's getting off the train soon. He's got to know. And he said, do forgive me. And she said, yes. Every time the train leaves the station, you take your Bible out of your bag and read from it. Yes, yes, I do, yes. When we get to the next station, you put your Bible back in the bag. Yes, yes. Do forgive me. Why do you do this? And she said, What are you, fuck off?
1: <laughs> <laughs> I love that.